0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello! So this week we watched the 1955 musical comedy The Court Jester, starring Danny Kaye, Glynnis Johns, Basil Rathbone and Angela Lansbury. Parodying fairy tales like Robin Hood and the early Disney princess movies, it follows an absurd conspiracy where a man goes undercover as the jester to the King of England, assisting a secret plot from an outlaw known as the Black Fox. So thank you very much to our Patreon subscriber Miles for requesting and sponsoring this episode. Um, I actually, by coincidence, watched this movie a few months ago for the first time and was very amused. And I think Morgan just watched it now for this episode and was also very amused. This is a... Very fun movie of a specific period in Hollywood history. Well, I watched this with my mom. I also watched it with my mom. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Family movie. Yep. And the last time I watched a movie with my mother for the purposes of recording an episode, it was The Music Man, which famously, if you are a longtime listener, you will recall did not go well. So you and she were both kind of like, what if this also goes down badly? But I think it would be kind of hard for this movie to go down badly with anyone. It's just so enjoyable. And I found it enjoyable kind of on two levels. The first of which is just that it's so pleasurable as a film. Like, it's hard not to like this movie, I think. And then also, if you have seen like any Hollywood film that has any kind of like medieval stuff going on, it's so clearly connected to this, whether intentionally or not. And that was really fascinating to me. Like, we'll go into all of this, but this is four years before Sleeping Beauty came out and it's
0: so clearly connected to that movie. I mean, the aesthetic of the women's hair, their dresses and like the silhouette is just the quintessential vintage Disney princess appearance.
1: And Angela Lansbury plays the king's daughter in this and she is wearing at alternating points in the movie, a pink and a blue dress that I think have to have inspired the pink and the blue dress from Sleeping Beauty. I don't know the timeline of how those things were put together, but like someone was talking to someone or someone saw this movie and then decided that that had to go into that film. There's just so many images in this that feel like they could be pulled straight out of Sleeping Beauty, which I watched a couple years ago for the first time in like 20 plus years. But there's also, obviously, connections to The Princess Bride, which we'll talk about. And we also recently watched the Gene Kelly and Judy Garland film, The Pirate, and that's connections to that. Again, whether it's deliberate or not, I don't know. But seeing how all of these things kind of tie in together is one of my favorite things about watching old movies. And I had never heard of this movie before Miles requested it. And so watching it and being like, oh, this is like a hidden key to all of these other things <laughs> I love Well, was really friend cool. of the
0: pod Charlotte is a big
1: fan. This makes sense if you know Charlotte, which most of our (laughs) listeners don't, but um, to give some context, not about Charlotte so much, but about like this kind of movie that I think, like I think people do love this, like a certain sort of culty group of people love this movie. There's like a campy element without the movie exactly being camp. Like there's a slight edge of satire, even if it's not completely a satire and also has this like, manic energy vaudeville performers bright colors that is kind of enduring you know like that humor has not faded in any way I don't think
0: no I mean it completely lands and we're definitely going to talk about a lot of the gender stuff in here because like they're doing some fun things in there but it's simultaneously quite 50s but also doesn't feel dated and offensive it just feels like oh this is some vintage stuff while also in some ways being sort of almost like slyly progressive for a film of this type. But yeah, shall I talk a bit about the people behind this movie? Please do, because I don't know too much about this. So you will be educating me as well. Okay, so this is written and directed by a long-running creative partnership, Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, who met in college. And they were working together for like 40 years. They began with musical comedy writing on the radio, because this was a period when there were a lot of radio hosts who had the same fame level as like currently you get on late night TV. So all the Jimmys and so forth were on the radio. So they did writing for Milton Berle and Bob Hope, who you will definitely have heard of. And then they would make Bing Crosby and Bob Hope movie scripts in the 40s. So that's kind of how they got into Hollywood. Their most famous movie is White Christmas, which is a very famous musical comedy. And the star of this film, Danny Kaye, It's not really a name that's sort of iconic now, but he was extraordinarily famous and successful at this point, a sort of wryly, funny, musical comedy actor who was like, he usually did quite family-friendly stuff, and he was known for these really fast-paced patter songs and slapstick And beginning of his career, he's a working class Jewish man from New York with an immigrant background, and he started out on vaudeville. You will not be remotely shocked to hear if you watch this movie, a lot of strong vaudeville vibes, but he developed his pantomime skills, allegedly, (laughs) while touring in Asia where audiences like couldn't speak English. So he had to have a really well-rounded skill set as a performer. And then he started making movies in the 40s and did like radio variety shows and stuff. And this movie, as we said, is 1955, so that was sort of peak Danny Kaye. But throughout his career, he was married to the same women for his whole life, Sylvia Fine, who was this really successful lyricist, and she wrote a lot of his material, including these patter songs, um, some of which are in this movie.
1: Well, I think we should, before we even get further into the plot or the fairy tale aspects, I think we should talk a bit more about Kay and the vaudeville stuff. Yes. Not so much his biography, because I don't know a ton about that. I did read his Wikipedia page last <laughs> night. Very interesting well, stuff.
0: The, the main thing I knew about Danny Kay is he is a famed amateur chef, which was not a particularly popular hobby for male celebrities in this era. But he was like extremely into cooking and had, I think, like a massive professional grade kitchen and stuff and would like host really impressive parties, which is the kind of information I like to hear about a vintage celeb.
1: Yes. He and his wife also, they had a daughter and there was a quote on Wikipedia about how he was like, she's just going to do whatever she wants in life, not influenced by her parents. And like this woman went on to be a journalist and not an entertainer, which I think is great. So yes, love to hear that. Good for him. (laughs) I definitely knew his name. This was the first time that I know of that I'd seen him in a movie. And it made me think a lot about vaudeville and the vaudeville performers who wound up in the movies in the 30s 40s and 50s and earlier i mean buster keaton obviously is one of the most famous examples of this um the dana Stevens biography that came out of him earlier in the year talks a lot about his early years on vaudeville when he was like a tiny child and then he winds up in the movies when he's in his 20s but this movie struck me as such a great example of like displaying the various talents that people honed on Broadway and then put in the movies. So, someone like Keaton is another good example of that because it's such a bizarre skill set that like no one would otherwise develop. But, someone like Astaire or Gene Kelly, who are such great dancers, also were vaudeville people, but it may not be as intuitive to think of them that way because they have one specific skill. That is so ludicrously over the top. Like, obviously, they're great performers in other ways as well, but like, you think of them as dancers. Whereas, Kay is really fascinating because he doesn't do a ton of dancing in this movie. There's a little bit, but that's clearly not like his thing. His acting is really good. He does all of these like tongue twister things that are just astounding. Like, I can't even imagine having the verbal facility to do that.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's also a bunch of great sequences where. As in the pirate, there is a brainwashing element to this film, yes, um and there's points where he kind of will have his his mind will be like taken over by an evil witch and you have to really comically fast switch between his real and fake personalities
1: yes, and that displays his the slapstick you were talking about and just like his comedic control of his body as well as the verbal stuff, right because he's taking on a different persona that has a very different like physical presence to the other person he's playing, and he switches back and forth between them incredibly fast. He obviously can also sing. It's not necessarily that he's like the most beautiful singer in the world, but he can do that well enough that it, it works to for him to be the lead in the musical. And he's doing like fighting in this movie in a way that totally comes off. And so there's just all of these different types of performing that are happening within one performance in this film. And you just do not see people this multi-talented anymore. And I found it really interesting to think about because vaudeville was famously horrible. People did not have a good time in that environment. And Kay wasn't in that space when he was like a tiny kid. So perhaps that's why he seems to have turned out to be like a pretty decent person. But obviously lots of children were performing on vaudeville and like, were really traumatized by that and pretty fucked up for their entire lives. And so I'm not like advocating for like the return of vaudeville, but it's really kind of fascinating to me to watch these movies and see what to me is like the peak of human performance and entertainment and know that it's kind of tied to this really exploitative, bad, thing that happened but then you see the results and you're like my god no one can do well, this anymore like this yeah is insane, it's right? that's such a good
0: point right and it's there's just like multiple different angles to it and as you were saying that i was thinking about how american TV and movies are like fucking ravenous to just hire British people who have stage experience. And it's all this practice, right? And that's only like one element of it. Cause it's like if you go to RADA or you're in the Royal Shakespeare Company, you have a lot of very serious theater training and all this practice that people don't if they're just like a model turned actor in Los Angeles. But with people who came through the vaudeville circuit, you simultaneously have people who have to have a ton of personal drive and learn a really wide variety of skills because these are people where it's like, oh, I can ride the unicycle and I have perfect pitch. and you know. But also it's crowd work because when you hear stories about all of these famous movie stars who started out in vaudeville, you'd be playing dive bars every night and you'd be really good at patter with the crowd and you'd be able to roll with the punches and have basically just be really flexible creatively. I mean, there's some stars like Mae West that literally came up from that and like the movies that they created initially specifically with Mae West like she made movies that are around her stage persona and were the same kind of jokes that she was using and here with Danny Kay, he's using that same skill set in the kind of movie that could only be happening in Hollywood because it is like a big budget movie with horses and extras and like a big fucking castle and stuff but all the stuff he is doing as a person is completely within that really theatrical zone.
1: Like, I think there are a couple things about this movie that don't totally work. Mostly, I think the last act kind of gets too big and drags a bit. But I think it is all designed... Like, it's clearly designed around his star persona, right? While also giving the other actors stuff to do. Like, they get to be funny and, you know. But it's all about Danny Kaye. But it manages to do that while also using the Hollywood apparatus to create this big spectacle, right? As opposed to just like a one-man show where he's just like doing his stuff, which is what these big musicals accomplished, right? Like they managed to sort of fuse both those two things together in a way that created something that was sort of bigger than either thing alone. And that's why they've survived, I think, because they're such sensational entertainments in a way that does it's not really possible to make them anymore, both because Hollywood doesn't have the incentive and because the performers just... Gene Kelly can't exist. So, like It's not Yeah, it's like possible. we have
0: one Hugh Jackman and we're not really using him that well.
1: <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Yeah. But why don't we get a bit more into the plot and sort of how it's using all the fairy tale stuff? Because I think that that is yeah.
0: really fun. So they throw in a bunch of really classic material right off the bat. The initial premise is that there is an evil king, King Roderick, who is a tyrannical ruler of England, although to be quite frank, it's not really clear it's England until halfway through the film. It's just, you know, generic historical fantasy land. And there is also a Robin Hood style rebel guy living in the forest named the Black Fox. And he is like a classic man of the people hero, but also his goal is to get a new guy on the throne. So he's also a monarchist. And he is trying to get this baby. And the reason they know the baby is the heir to the throne is because he's got a birthmark on his bum, which is classic. And this is kind of the point where they introduce the protagonist, who is Danny Kay, obviously. And he's initially introduced as the Black Fox in this comedic musical number featuring, as often happened in classic Hollywood, a supporting chorus of little people who are credited as mind's midgets, which is very, very 50s.
1: Also, to briefly interrupt you, many of those little people are played by children. So there's just like a lot happening. There's a lot
0: happening. I looked them up on IMDb and like they have no other credits. So I don't think this was like a recognized ensemble, which was the case. Like there were unions and stuff. But yeah. um, you think during this musical number, you're like, aha, we're being introduced to the classic swashbuckling hero of whom we have seen many versions over the decades but actually it's a bait and switch because once he finishes up this musical number as the Black Fox it's revealed that he is actually just one member of the Black Fox collective and the boss Black Fox is actually quite annoyed that Danny Kaye keeps wearing his outfit because Danny Kaye is a junior member of the group he is a former Carnival performer who ran away from the Carnival to join the the Rebellion and he doesn't actually have any skills and his job is to be the babysitter and his sort of senior advisor is actually Maid Jean, who is played by Glennis Johns, who everyone will know as the uh, mother from Mary Poppins a few years later. And uh, she is, by the way, in this movie gorgeous. She's wearing some beautiful false eyelashes, which I was like mesmerized by for the whole film. She looks incredible. But yeah, this whole dynamic is a bit of a gender nonconformist pair because Danny Kaye is the babysitter who is not a good fighter and Glennis Johns is this rebel who's like the captain and she is all tough and practical. And their job is to smuggle this baby into the evil King's castle and like do various absurd hijinks in order to like get a secret key and get a passage and like dethrone the King. It's all fucking overcomplicated. We don't need to explain it, but um, that's kind of the initial thing. And to get into the castle, they end up having Danny Kaye steal the identity of the court jester who is just joining the court from the court of Italy However, the shocking twist is that secretly this jester is not a jester at all. He's actually an assassin who has been hired by this guy who's like the evil villain played by Basil Rathbone in the court. And at this point, everything turns into just like a spaghetti tangle of absurd double crosses.
1: (laughs) Yes, and the hypnotism comes in because the king is trying to marry his daughter, Angela Lansbury, off to this
0: unappealing knight guy a great role in fake Scottish characters there. Yes. Clearly meant to be Scottish, but um, who can even say what he's doing? (laughs) Correct.
1: And she is this sort of like flighty blonde girl. And is like, well, I only want to marry for love. And she has a witch companion. And she says to the witch that if she is forced to marry this guy, that they're both going to die. Meaning she and the witch companion. So then she winds up becoming infatuated with Danny Kay because the witch hypnotizes him to fall in love with her. And like, again, the tangle of plot threads is just incredible. At one point, when he's not hypnotized and doesn't remember what's happened, he's just standing there and like three different groups of people come up to him, like telling him what to do, but without context, because he's had conversations with all of them where he was in this other persona, and he's just like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, like, he's like I-
0: holding a baby, and he's been given a secret key, and also some woman is in love with him, and he doesn't know who she is. Like, just amazing. And he's
1: supposed to assassinate people, but he doesn't know what's going on with that either. So they really manage to cleverly wind all these things together, while also having like all of the scenes be basically just absurdist nonsense. Like, it's a pretty impressive feat to have the plot actually make sense, but also it's just the whole thing is just just completely silly. Chaos. Yeah. (laughs) So, why don't we talk? So, there's like the gender stuff is really interesting. I think there's more to say about some of the actual comedy and how that comes off in the film and the musical numbers, too. But I think to start off with, sort of how this film fits in with like other fairy tale stuff. Is pretty interesting and kind of key to how it's functioning. Although the first movie it made me think of was not a fairy tale movie, but The Pirate, which we did a bonus episode on a month or two ago, which for people who are not familiar is a Gene Kelly and Judy Garland movie from 1946, I want to say, which also has this sort of unmacho man is pretending to be a more macho guy plot going on. Like Gene Kelly is playing an entertainer, exactly like in this movie, and then he pretends to be a pirate to woo
0: Judy Garland. It's kind of a great illustration with both of those movies how Hollywood has just been digesting itself since day one because these films are basically around the same time, like late 40s, 50s, and that's kind of the second generation after the first round of swashbuckling movies, and these are made by guys who are massive movie stars, but their brands are not tied to violence and masculinity, so they can have the yeah. freedom to poke fun at those personas while also being capable of doing the swashbuckling thing because they're both really athletic and funny.
1: Right. And this was 9 years after the pirate, so I'm sure it was influenced by that in some way. There's also a hypnotism element in the pirate, and there is in this movie too, so like
0: The two things I was thinking of with that, I was like, I was thinking, oh, it's the pirate. But mostly what I was thinking is, this is the mid 50s. There's a kind of a Cold War element to all of these double crosses, you know, and all the, the brainwashing and the idea that there's like secret people in the court trying to assassinate people. And then there's some guy who's just like a roguish goon who doesn't know what's happening and gets caught up in it. It's kind of a Cold War comedy.
1: Yes, although there is no political ideology. No, absolutely
0: none whatsoever, unless you think it's meant to be satirizing the idea of putting another king on the throne, which I don't think it really is. (laughs) No, no. But as I said, Snow White is before this, but I don't think
1: there's actually a ton in common with that. Yeah,
0: I mean, Cinderella is a bit closer. Like Cinderella aesthetically is in that zone. And as you said, Sleeping Beauty comes like four years later. Yeah, and Sleeping Beauty is the one that really I think, well, because the shape of the hair, like Glennis John's hair and makeup, like there's a really specific type of hair and makeup that was in vogue in the mid to late fifties, and she is really working it. And also, like the women are wearing these incredible corsets. And actually, I should link in the show notes. I did a whole YouTube video that was about the history of the Disney princess dress. And in that, I kind of talk about how the quintessential Disney princess dress is literally from the 50s. Like, that is the silhouette that everyone associates with it. And that is what you're seeing in this physically. And it's what they fail to execute in modern Disney princess movies, because they're not trying to emulate a 50s outfit, which is what they should be doing corsetry-wise.
1: Yeah. And there's also, like, in addition to the dresses, like, the tiaras are, like, exactly the same as in Sleeping Beauty. There's one... Outfit where I guess Angela Lansbury has like a damask wimple thing and the, the tiara on top of it, which is exactly a, an outfit from Sleeping Beauty. And I was thinking about like what was happening in this cultural moment because like Camelot is around this time too, that like the medieval thing comes and goes, like it never stays away for
0: too well, long. I think also there was a lot of children's books, right? Because like the way the outfits are done in this remind me so much of children's fairy tale books I read as a child, like old children's fairy tale books. Yeah. And it's like in the men especially they've got this particular fake medieval chin-length hairstyle and fake medieval stockings they're wearing and tunics and stuff. And I'm like, this is illustrations from early 20th century children's fantasy books.
1: Yeah. And in the 19th century, this there was this sort of medieval revival ism in the uk and i think more broadly in europe that would have obviously sort of penetrated the us as well about architecture and design primarily and that sort of happens post romantics so like the early 19th century there's still this like obsession with the greeks and like georgian architecture right has all the columns and then everyone gets obsessed with the medieval period which is part of the in general the 19th century's obsession with like the past and I mean, the romantic thing was like to build a ruin in your house to be like,
0: it's old. I literally <laughs> just Googled something because I was like, I want to know when the cloisters in New York were acquired. Yes. 1913. Yeah. <laughs> it's when they just picked up a medieval castle from France and put them in New York. <laughs> yeah. Which was just like a
1: weird rich man. Yeah, it, it like <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it makes sense that this would sort of revive a bit. I'm just thinking it probably never really went away, but after World War II, right? When there's this like massive modern, just like horrific thing where all of these millions of people have died through modern warfare, that the idea of like going back to this nostalgic past that's very old fashioned gender wise, which the fifties were as well in America it just makes a lot of sense that that would be going on. And of course, Disney makes hay out of all of these fairy tales yeah. as well. And this
0: movie is absolutely in the classic 50s movie musical zone of being totally family friendly. But unlike some of the musicals in this period, it doesn't feel like it's been baudelarized and cleaned up. Like It just feels like it should be the level that it's at. You know?
1: Yeah, unlike The Pirate, which is unbelievably horny, yeah. <laughs> like, this movie is just very nice. It's just very like, nice. you're going to watch it with your mom. <laughs> yep. But then to sort of move forward, you can also see how this is influencing stuff like, especially The Princess Bride. You have a mention of the TV show Gallivant. Yes, I fucking the love
0: Gallivant. I've watched every episode, highly recommended. Musical, comedy, parody show all about fairy tale shit.
1: Yeah, which I never watched, but I remember it coming out, and that totally makes sense. Hysterical shit. The Princess Bride, <laughs> especially the fencing stuff is the most obvious example of, like, they're just ripping this off in The Princess Bride. Which, I mean, I say that not as a criticism because The Princess Bride is perfect, but, like, it's obvious where they're getting influence from, right? And even, like, the aesthetic of the bad guy in this looks quite like the aesthetic of the bad guy in The Princess Bride. (laughs) Yeah, who's been
0: the bad guy in Shrek.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. So, like, all this stuff just gets passed down. And William Goldman, who wrote The Princess Bride, of course, knew, like, every film, so he surely had seen this but as I think I said at the top like it's just really fascinating when you see the movie that's kind of in between stuff and like you didn't realize that there was this like missing link that you didn't have in your brain and the Princess Bride is such an important and influential movie that I think most of our listeners will probably have seen or at least heard of and like I didn't know anything about this film and so of watch it and be like oh my god like this was obviously crucial to the making of that movie, which I love. is really cool. You have some, some other information about the fencing
0: in here. I remember long before I saw this movie, I remember this sword fight specifically went viral on Tumblr for a while, as random scenes occasionally do. And it was someone kind of talking about how exciting it is to watch like Basil Rathbone go against Danny Kaye. I'm not looking to this in the show notes because the post actually is not accurate as so many viral posts are on Tumblr. But basically, Basil Rathbone, who by this point was like in his early 60s, if you don't know his name, he was a very established character actor in Hollywood. And his best role, like his most famous role is that he was Sherlock Holmes in like 15 Hollywood Sherlock Holmes movies in the 30s and 40s. But he also played Guy of Gisborne in the 1930s. Adventures of Robin Hood and he was personally a champion fencer and so in this movie you have this one guy who is clearly an expert fencer and knows how to do everything and then you have Danny Kaye who learned how to fence for the movie I read a little interview with Basil Rathbone and he was basically just like Danny Kaye did an incredible job like he was really talented and managed to learn all this stuff really quickly from an Olympic fencer and I read another interview where it was like but I was dodging for my life (laughs) you know (laughs) because it's very fast and the issue with the fight is that Basil Rathbone is meant to be playing a champion fencer and Danny Kaye is playing a slapstick character who's fucking waving this sword around all the time and you know it's not a sharp sword but I'm sure you can take someone's eye out with it
1: (laughs) yes slightly stressful to watch (laughs) like obviously they're not going to show any real the thing that really gets me the
0: stunt that gets me in this movie right because like that is definitely the era where they're doing some not real like it's staged combat but you can still it's still visibly unsafe, you know? But, but there's a scene where he does this really long rope jump where you swing on a rope like Tarzan. And he does this like three times in a way that is clearly defying physics because it's like, if you really did that, you'd be doing a huge pendulum and then die instantly. But at the same time, it clearly is like a stunt person doing this. And they're really close to the wall and it's like the longest rope I've seen ever. And i was just like, this guy seems like he's probably gonna fucking die. <laughs> well,
1: let's just hope whoever it was was fine. Yes. <laughs> I assume we
0: know of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean they clearly survived, but it was like that was like an unsafe stunt.
1: <laughs> I mean the one I always think of from earlier than this is at the end of Bringing up baby oh, when God, Catherine yes. Hepburn is literally hanging from Cary Grant's hand from like two stories up because the like big dinosaur skeleton that he's working on in that movie collapses and she winds up Falling and then yeah. hanging from Carrie Grant's hand, and there's no like
0: she would have died. I was we watched that recently, off. and I was like, I don't think she's on wires or anything. Like, I no, think she died. died.
1: Isn't? I mean, she was an astonishing athlete, and he obviously was. He was a a guy. He was incredibly fit, also. But like, that would never in one million years happen today. Like, oh my god. Like, ah! So, um, yeah, risk calculation was not the same in the past. They kind of were just like, well, it's fine. I mean, obviously also bringing up baby, there's like a full, like leopard, just like wandering around. (laughs) (laughs) Madness. So we already mentioned the pirate in terms of these sort of like wonky gender role stuff going on because that film also has this sort of like atypical masculine hero. And, This is another example of that in a way that I found quite interesting, especially because the female character also actually has agency. And most romantic comedies from the 50s are bad.
0: Grotesque. The Doris Day era was a dark time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So what kind of stood out for you in terms of how they were depicting that character, aside from what
0: we've already mentioned? The the kind of the dy- dynamic between them is that you immediately know that he's attracted to her, but she, you learn quite quickly as well that she's attracted to him. And the thing that she specifically likes about him is that he's just looking after this baby really well. <laughs> so she's in charge. He calls her like captain uh, while they're on the run, kind of traveling to the castle with this baby, they hide for the night in this barn or whatever, and he sings one of the few sincere songs in the movie to this baby is a lullaby and you see her kind of setting up the bed and stuff and being like oh he has actually he's great material and it's this interesting dynamic right because on the one hand 1950s pop culture and just culture in general is fucking obsessed with nuclear families And this was like the height of the baby boom. But also it's not the typical gender roles, obviously, (laughs) because usually it's very much in the sort of conservative thing of like some man goes out to work and the woman stays at home and looks after the kids. And they do have... As you even get in movies now, this part where she's like, well, I am a woman with feelings and I actually do need to be loved. And the reason I'm like this is because I learned that learned it from my father. Just like you watch a movie now and it's like, oh, I can fix planes because I learned from my dad. And it's bullshit. But it's kind of a really small moment. And then that character dynamic basically stays the same for the rest of the movie. Like she's really competent. She's clearly kind of an experienced part of this little stupid revolution thing they have. And he is just a jester. Like his skills are that he's funny. And although I don't know a great deal about Danny Kaye, I did know some sort of general info about his public persona. And as Morgan said kind of earlier in the podcast, it's a character that's built around his abilities and his public image. And he had this sort of celebrity image of like, you know, he's a comedian. People knew him really well from radio stuff. So they knew that they were going to come in here and get like Patra songs and it would be family friendly. He was also a UNICEF ambassador. And it isn't like a really macho image and like that's kind of how you can have that situation in here and also like it's all that's all happening but it's not really a particularly queer role either because I can see like ways in which you could like emphasize that part of this being like a satirical situation and they don't really have that here
1: well and that could go one of two ways right it could either be uncomfortable because they're making fun of him for being effeminate Or it could be kind of subversive. And because the movie's not particularly sexual, it just doesn't... He's just kind of silly. Yeah. And has a crush on this woman. Yeah. In a very... G-rated sort of <laughs> and it, way. It right? really
0: leans into the actual purpose of a court jester because the king character is not this Machiavellian tyrant. He's basically just an idiot. He's this middle-aged sort of manager guy who's being led around by his shitty advisors. The real villain is obviously this nasty guy played by Basil Rathbone who's more smart and evil. But once Danny Kaye becomes the jester, you see him running rings around the king and being really funny and using wordplay and stuff. And that also kind of ties into his own public image like as a guy.
1: Yes. I was really struck by how like the film is obviously not interested in reality in any way, nor should it be like, I I don't care, but clearly they have thought in a real way about certain aspects of medieval culture, primarily the role of the jester, which isn't the closest thing we have to that now is like celebrities who get roasted at like events for charity, Yeah, right? Because they're like, I'm so confident that I can take jokes and like, it doesn't matter. But it's a very distinctive feature of that era that like the king was so powerful that the way he displayed that was having a guy who just made fun of him in front of other people, and then he would laugh about it. But no one else was allowed to do that, right? And these guys were really brilliant performers, obviously, and there's a way that that can be used by writers as like a way to get to something more real. Like King Lear is obviously the most famous example of this. And I think this movie really in a 1950s cultural context uses that character in a way that feels kind of like it's actually commenting on what this would have been like right which is that like he does just really make fun of the king to his face but in a like clever wordplay sort of way so it's fine and some of the stuff he's saying is kind of astute but then once once a real problem crops up which is that the king finds out that he's been fooling around with his daughter, That it's like done, right? Because it has to remain in this realm of the
0: symbol as opposed to I mean, that whole situation made me quite curious to read anything that's been written about Danny Kaye's role in kind of folding into the history of Jewish comedy in Hollywood. Because that definitely feels like it kind of feeds into the way this character is constructed as a parody because... It's specifically being like, this is not the Anglo, macho, swashbuckling hero you get in your earlier versions of this genre. But at the same time, he's not putting himself down. It's like, here is a different way to circumvent this same story while also being the protagonist that everyone really loves, which just felt familiar to me instinctively. But like, I don't know enough about Jewish Hollywood comedy history to say anything smarter about that. <laughs>
1: Well, as you were talking, I was thinking, and I was thinking about this, we were talking about vaudeville earlier, of the Marx Brothers, who, very famous vaudeville act, basically just got transplanted wholesale into the movies. and they started when they were very young. And it would be interesting to do a kind of, like, comparative reading of those different types of stardom, right? Because, well, the Marx Brothers are much dirtier than this movie, because there's lots of sex jokes in them, but... They're not really sex objects, despite that. Like the pull point is that they're kind they're of these. All, like, I mean, weird they're clones. They're, they're a row of yeah. clones, <laughs> right? Although there's one brother who plays like the straight man in the movies, who's just like very handsome, and he he then went off to like do something else with his life, like partway through the 30s. I think he became an agent. But even though they're not kind of sexualized in a desirable way, they are also doing something really. Chaotic and like they're overturning the sort of like established norms in whatever situation they find themselves. Like, that's the entire point of the Marx brothers, right? Especially in Duck Soup, which is their most famous and best movie. That like they're just total agents of chaos, and any kind of establishment that they walk into, which is presumably run by like rich Anglo people, they're just like, goodbye. Like, <laughs> we're taking this over, it's ours now. And the Danny Kay thing, he definitely is more in the vein of a a star type that is already familiar to audiences. Like, the Marx Brothers were so completely just, like, their own thing. But there is this sort of element of subversion to it, I think you're right, where he kind of is taking over himself, but also being like, but I get to to still be desirable in some way. I mean, it's not very dissimilar from a lot of Gene Kelly's roles, except that Gene Kelly
0: is a leading man, classic is a leading.
1: <laughs> right. But like he comes from a super working class background yeah. and I think had a chip on his shoulder about that and it was also very silly in a lot of his movies. But you always have a sense of him as this sort of awe inspiring figure because of the dancing. Whereas with Danny Kaye, he does inspire awe because his performing is amazing, but it's
0: not the same. Yeah, he's like, more in the clown zone. Yeah,
1: while still getting to get the girl at the end,
0: right? I should say that Glynnis Johns, we've not really spoken about her as much because like, her role yeah. is more standard, but she is also wonderful in this.
1: <laughs> well, I think her role is really interesting because... When you first get introduced to her, she's just wearing men's clothes. Danny Kaye calls her sir because that's like her. Yeah, because she's the captain. Rank. Yeah, which is really interesting. Rapidly, that's no longer happening because she's putting on, you know, basically like in disguise to infiltrate the castle. She has to wear women's clothing. And then she gets picked as one of like the ladies who are going to be hanging out with the nobility, which is as close as the movie gets to really talking about sex.
0: And oh yeah, casting wise as well, right before this, she did two big swashbucklers. So she yeah. done The Sword and the Rose and Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue, a movie which I can never watch because that sounds excruciating. The poster for it is like a guy wearing like sexy Highland dress, unbelievable stuff. But yeah, she'd just done like two really high profile Disney swashbuckling movies that were clearly quite sincere. And then like two years later, she's like, I'm here to do the court jester.
1: Very smart casting. From these people because that would be the association that audiences had with her right and she's really really funny and really good at doing like a subversion of the classic you know damsel in distress thing because she's not in distress she's playing the role fairly straight but there's Just like a level of absurdity to the whole thing that she totally buys into. There's a scene with the king where he's kind of trying to get her to sleep with him. And she very quickly makes up this plague that her entire family has, but assures him that it's not catching. And he immediately is like, oh, I actually don't want to have anything to do with you. But that's also, it's not verbal at the same level as like the Danny K. Patter stuff, but it's also pretty quick and snappy. And she's really good. Yeah, and all that stuff.
0: I think there were quite a few like female comic actresses at this period. Although obviously she was a dramatic actress, also where it was like their role was to play the straight women, but not in the sense that they were like completely straight and they weren't the butt of any of the jokes. Like someone who could still be smart, but like their role wasn't as absurdist as the male lead is kind of a familiar dynamic to me.
1: Yes, and if you had these male vaudeville stars, the movies so have to. Be shaped around them because they are the attraction. And so then, but there still has to be a female lead, right? And sometimes those female leads are also dancers and also like are part of the attraction because they have this unbelievable skill set as well. But sometimes it's just an actress and like they're just gonna do something. And I think that can be really hard because, of course, And this, of course, still happens all the time now, like you're just kind of getting like less to do. But I think they do give her enough that you still feel like she has a personality. And I think it can sometimes be boring if the woman is the competent one and the man is kind of playing the fool. But in this case, it felt just kind of like satisfying to me that she was the one who actually was capable. I mean, he really does almost nothing. The entire
0: movie. I mean, he's just getting buffeted around by other smarter people's plots, which is always a great thing to watch. You know, someone who's yes. basically the Bertie Wooster of the plot.
1: Yeah, she is also alive currently. She's ninety-eight years old. She is, I believe, the oldest and one of the only surviving stars of the Golden Age of Hollywood. Now that Olivia De Havilland is is dead, she lives in a senior living facility in Los Angeles, according to Wikipedia. Wow. And I just think that's amazing. Yeah. She married four times. Good for her. I think all of them were short-lived. I think the only other thing to really talk about... Well, I think we should talk a bit about the climax because that is the point in which the movie falls apart a bit. And I think we should say a little bit more about the hypnotism because I think that's a big part of the plot and the gender stuff and the performance. we've kind of touched on all of that. So I don't know if there is actually that much more to say, but it just stuck out to me as such a
0: huge component. I mean, basically like my thought on it and like Morgan has seen this movie a lot more recently. So I think she'll have to like take point on talking about the finale, which I don't remember very well. But um, the thing about the hypnotism thing that struck me is that the joke here is that Angela Lansbury's witchy pal, like the nanny who raised her hypnotizes the jester to be like this perfect lover to be this like romantic figure because she knows that the princess is desperate to have a romantic figure in her life so she's just going to create one from whole cloth otherwise she's going to get punished which is just a very amusing situation and it kind of just highlights that this princess is kind of an idiot but um, it means that like the only times when Danny Kay is being really confident and cool and competent is when he's literally been hypnotized to be the type of character that the movie is parodying And it's really funny because he is doing it really over the top and it also functions perfectly well with when he's interacting with Basil Rathbone because there's a point where he's been hypnotized so that he can really be really seductive towards a princess but then he has a private meeting with Basil Rathbone where he gets like his mission to go and assassinate some people and like suddenly it's one of those situations where two characters who previously were in different genres are suddenly in the same genre temporarily and then he's like removed back into clown land and it's like doesn't have any fucking clue what's going on so it kind of means that there's just like multiple different levels of people having false identities because like Danny Kaye is already got a false identity because he is pretending to be the jester. There's multiple people who are pretending to be the black fox. Everyone is undercover in some capacity or is lying to each other. And the only people who are just presenting themselves at face value are the really boring masculine authority figures who are just having people run around them in circles when they're being more subversive and comedic and weird. Which is just, you know, the whole foundation of the comedy here.
1: Well, and that's the foundation of basically all romantic comedy, right? I mean, obviously, people pretending to be other people shows up in other kinds of comedies as well. But if you go back to Shakespeare, all of his comedies basically revolve around people pretending to be somebody else. And the romantic comedies in the 30s and 40s heavily feature people pretending to be other people, whether just for this kind of like amusement of their partner or for actual schemes like this. And I think. It's a huge component of how those movies and this movie play with the concept of gender and like how people are supposed to behave, but also create like secret codes between the love interests so that they have kind of something to hide from everybody else. Which in this case is like, if you don't keep it hidden, you will die. So
0: that's kind of. (laughs) And then in The Pirate, it's all about sex. Yes. Which, yeah. please watch The Pirate, please listen to her episode of The Pirate. It is a fantastic movie. But in that film, Judy Garland is this quite prudish girl who gets hypnotized to kind of unleash her sexier side um, in this very absurd scenario involving a pirate. And it's just, it's so delightful. But they also, like, there's multiple levels of false identities in that, which I will not spoil, and are yeah. delightful.
1: Yeah. And they base basically, basically what happens at the end of this movie is that, the court just rushes Danny Kay to knighthood, which is normally a process that they say takes five years and they do it overnight so that he can be challenged to a duel for the princess's hand, which he improbably then wins. But I really liked that whole setup because it was sort of dealing with bureaucracy and logistics in a way that you don't usually see in this kind of movie. And That also is getting at, like, the absurdity of this whole process, right? And how easily it can be manipulated. And the idea that, like, the most noble thing a man could do is be a knight, right? And they're just
0: completely, like, throwing that out the window. Listen to our podcast on A Knight's Tale, one of the greatest films ever made.
1: Oh. And then they're going to execute him though i don't remember how close they actually get to that and i saw this movie yesterday it doesn't actually matter the baby is in the room he's doing this whole like they're they're just trying to get the baby out of there and um the all of the little people from the first act of the movie show up having gone through the secret passageway to the castle and then like chaos reigns and then the fencing happens and then eventually They show the baby to everyone with its special flower-shaped birthmark on its butt, and everyone bows down. And um, I think the very like concluding note of the movie, which is everyone being like, "Oh, look at this baby," and then literally the baby's on the throne, is kind of making a satirical point, not about necessarily like monarchy, but just like it's so stupid that this baby is going to be the king now. Like, (laughs) the baby doesn't know anything, right? Like, it's just a cute baby. But that was the only point at which, like, all of the running around the castle and fighting, like, there were just a ton of people on the screen. All of a sudden, it was the only point at which the movie lost me a little bit, because I just think it's kind of too much. I mean, this is a classic movie problem from the beginning of time it's like They were really amazing
0: at doing enormous musical numbers with thousands and thousands of extras, and they were not really good at having a big battle where it's just people running around.
1: (laughs) Yes, but... That's really my only complaint. Otherwise, I just found it so unbelievably charming and entertaining. I mean, it's such a good film to watch with children. Like, I would have found this so entertaining as like a twelve-year-old or like a, a nine-year-old. Oh yeah, I mean, it's not. There's nothing inappropriate about it at all. I just was sort yeah. of imagining my myself. I can confirm self, it felt, it's too complex
0: know. for three-year-olds, but
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much again to Miles for requesting this. I, again, had like never heard of this movie and I had such a good time watching it. If you are still listening and you have not yet seen this film, please go check it out. It was a blast. So next week we will be talking about a film that we watched together when I was visiting Gavia in Scotland. The Patrick Swayze classic, Roadhouse. We do have several requests that we'll be we will be getting to very soon, but um, we wanted to talk about this before it like evaporated from our brains because we did watch it a couple weeks ago. Gavia, would you like to like describe the plot of Roadhouse? Like, how does one oh, do such thing? God, this I this don't... film
0: was truly just a joy to experience. Okay, so it came out in nineteen eighty nine. It's directed by Rowdy Harrington, which is a name that really illustrates the vibe of this movie. Patrick Swayze, please a bar bouncer or like the manager of bar bouncers and the concept is that he is like the greatest bar bouncer in the world he is a philosopher and a gentleman he has amazing social skills and basically he gets hired to clean up an extremely wild and disastrous bar in a small rural town and um, you know he meets a girl but primarily he meets a lot of men And it's it's just unique. In the 80s, you could make a movie that was just about a guy who was the best bouncer in the world because he was a wonderful man. And that is what this film is about. And the portrayal and exploration of the concept of men in this film is unparalleled. Just the vibes, the fighting, the homoeroticism, the power plays... There's a lot going on. There's a reason why this film is a cult classic. It didn't receive good reviews at the time, but it should have done because it is absolutely incredible. Oh, I fucking loved it. Can't wait to discuss Roadhouse. <laughs> what a movie. Just, oh, chef's kiss. It's delicious. I love Patrick Swayze. He was a beautiful man. He's just just absolute star power in this. Magnificent. Oh,
1: Yeah, so definitely watch Roadhouse. Um, we will also, probably the week after, be talking about the version of Persuasion starring Sally Hawkins. So if you want to seek that out, you should find that to watch. It is much better than the Netflix version that is coming out probably the day that this episode is put up with Dakota Johnson. If you would like to hear our thoughts about that, you can go to Patreon, where there is either already a bonus episode on that movie or will be shortly. Gavia has not seen it because why would she? But I have, and I will just be... Morgan's my fury. gonna tell me about why this film is bad. So you can find that and our episode on the pirate. And if you can also request an episode if you would like at our Patreon, which is at patreoncom slash podcast We also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. A five-star rating and review is particularly helpful with visibility. And
0: Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? So I have finally joined Letterboxd. So um, please follow me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, where I have already started posting reviews and all the movies I watch logged as a diary as you used Letterboxd for. So yeah, Hello Taylor on there. And also, obviously, my work is on The Daily Dot, where I recently gave a one and a half star review to Thor, Love and Thunder, a terrible movie.
1: Yeah. Yes, indeed. I too am on Letterboxd at ML Davies. I'm also on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find my work at Bustle, where I should probably already have up a story about the inaccurate hair in Persuasion. That's what I like to write about. <laughs> and you can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.